This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. Stand by, 15 seconds to air. Stand by, old camera, and videotape. Ready with your opening graphics. Stand by, Howard. Here we come, Frank. Ready, Don. Stand by, audio, your opening music, and roll tape. Take tape. Celebrating 150 years of college football. Nick Saban had a decision to make. It was the spring of 1970, the first Monday in May. And he was a freshman football player at Kent State. A university in turmoil. A teammate of mine and I, we got out of class at 11.50, and we knew there was a noon rally. Leave this area immediately. And they had declared martial law the day before, so they were going to disperse the rally if they had it. But we decided to go to lunch and then go see what happened. The mood of this crowd is to stay there. They've got grievances, they've got demands, they demands on both sides, we have to talk. There were a lot of demonstrations, a lot of unrest about the war in Vietnam. But as a freshman, I was worried about going to school and playing ball and politically, I just was not involved in things like that. By the time we got there, the shooting had already occurred. Went to see four people dead. I had class with one of the students, Allison Krauss. It was pretty terrifying. Thank you. 
As a new decade dawned in America, in the shadow of the unrest surrounding a new cause, the Vietnam War, the state of Mississippi lay quiet by comparison. Beginning to heal from the rage and anguish of the civil rights movement. Archie Manning came along at a time where there wasn't much good news coming out about Mississippi. And then you had this wholesome, red-headed, freckle-faced guy that looked like a grown-up Huck Finn. Everybody was really looking for something like that, and here he comes. Archie Manning was from Drew in the Delta region, a high school star in four sports who became the Rebels' starter as a sophomore in 1968. The following summer, he went home to spend a few weeks with his parents. He was a household name across the state, the future limitless with possibilities. You know, I was the quarterback of a college football team, dating a beautiful girl, and life's pretty good. It was a Saturday in August. Archie had been at a wedding, but left to go home to cook steaks with his dad. It was the day a 20-year-old kid became a man. Some guys wanted me to go over to Cleveland, another town. I says, right over to Cleveland, you know, do something, probably drink beer or something. And I said, no, nah, I'm going I'm to go home. He found his father alone, dead, covered in blood, a shotgun on the floor. His health wasn't good. He'd had a stroke and didn't go to the doctor for almost a week. And then business over at the tractor place wasn't particularly good. It was just a low point in his life. However stunned he was, Archie reacted quickly, making the necessary phone calls and burning the sheets and mattress to spare his mother and sister the gruesome sight when they came home. I'm glad it was me. You know, I wouldn't want my mother to walk in on, on, on that, see that, my sister. So I was able to, like I said, I, I think you just grow up immediately. And this is right before he's going back to Oxford for summer football camp. But what 19, 20-year-old kid can handle that? Just seven weeks later, at Legion Field, Archie and Ole Miss took on Alabama. Alabama now, since Bailey to the far side. Touchdown, Russo and Alabama. Only the second regular season college football game ever in prime time on live TV. The ABC Sports broadcast would give a national audience quite a taste of the South. And Manning is in there. I mean, that was a Big, big deal. There is Manning now. This is going to be exciting. We're playing Alabama at night on, on national TV. Manning. It had been college football's answer to Gone with the Wind, an Old South spectacle awash with melodrama, madness. And more passes than Rhett Butler ever threw. William F. Reed, Sports Illustrated. In those days, we didn't throw all the time. 
not like today's game. One time Eli, after he went up to Ole Miss, he was looking through the media guide, and he called me. He said, you know, Deb, your numbers really weren't very good up here. But that night, we let it go. For people tuning in to see a college football game, they saw a pretty good one. Manning had 540 yards total offense. But Alabama would nip the Rebels 33-32. And trying to get out of bounds was Floyd Franks. Time has run out. And that's his most famous game. And they get beat 33-32. to They cut away with him walking off the field in tears. He was the most noble player in defeat I've ever seen. He became a hero that night, walking off that field, having done what nobody else had ever done in college football, putting up 540 yards total offense. Not an emotional guy ordinarily, and that's why it was so unusual to see that. I don't know, just everybody played their heart out. And uh, I guess the hardest thing is we're, we're picked to win the SEC, and we're 0-2. Yeah, that hurt. That, that, that hurt. We came back the next week. There was, I don't know how many, thousands of pieces of mail at the athletic dormitory and packages and cookies. You cannot believe the phone calls we got from people up north that saw the game on TV and said, God, we are rebel fans now. We can't believe that ball game. Before the Civil War, the Delta, with its cotton production, was one of the richest places in the world. By the time Archie was raised and drew, the region was just hanging on, even as its pride was still intact. It was the neatest little town to grow up in. It, I tell people, it was Mayberry. It was a farming community, and um, my dad had two brothers, my uncle Andy and my uncle Peyton. And uh, so I spent a good bit of time out there with them on that farm. That was good. Those were some pretty tough jobs. They really pushed me in sports more than my dad did. My dad grew up going to a lot of Ole Miss games, knew all of the Ole Miss quarterbacks, guys like Jake Gibbs and uh, the legends of, uh, of Ole Miss football. I grew up a New York Giants fan, Charlie Connolly. Number 42, Chuck and Charlie. He was from Clarksdale, Mississippi, 30 miles up the road. I always reflect back as a kid listening on the radio to Ole Miss. I listened to the Billy Cannon game. I was 10 years old. I cried when it was old. I listened to it again, a rebroadcast of it. You know, the game ended, Ole Miss was trying to score on the goal line and got stopped. I guess the reason I listened to it again, I thought maybe this time they're going to score. I cried the first time, and I cried when I listened to it again. When Archie came here as a freshman in 67, and I knew then he was going to be special. When I was uh, in high school, they were playing a freshman game. My father was coaching for the Cleveland Browns. We went to the game, kind of scouting. And he came back, and he said, Bert, I think I have just seen 
the best quarterback I have ever seen on the college football field. His name is Manning. We hadn't seen that kind of quarterbacking before. Archie could run. I mean, he had these legs that flew everywhere. The whole idea was to get him out on the corner, rolling left or right, with an option to run or throw. Had crazy legs. You know, he'd go that way, and then he'd come back and go the other way. You'd chasing him all over the field. He was so fluid on the field, the way he moved, the way he could throw. He had a cannon for an arm. And he had a presence that I don't think has been matched since. Despite the Alabama loss, <laughs> Ole Miss surged later in 69, though not everyone was impressed. Tennessee linebacker Steve Kiner suggested to a writer that Ole Miss had a bunch of mules on their team. The Rebels fired back that they had Archie, to which Kiner infamously responded, Archie who? Coach Vaught actually drug a mule out to practice that day, had an airplane fly over the practice field and drop leaflets with Archie who. There were Archie buttons. There were recordings of the Ballad of Archie Who. The result, Ole Miss 38, number three ranked in unbeaten Tennessee, zero. His win against Tennessee still haunts Tennessee fans, and they still uh, hold that, hold a grudge against my dad. He gave us a sense of significance. Mississippi hungers for respect. He doesn't have the title, but he's governor. And he always will be governor of Mississippi. He's just one of us. In 1970, the expectations grew. There would be stunning victories. Heartbreaking losses and a most untimely injury. I was the first one to him that day on the field when he broke his arm. And we told him, you got a long career in front of you. You hadn't got to try to play the rest of these games. It was my left arm. I had a plate and four screws put in there. And I, you know, I just kind of asked. I said, well, can we, let's do something. Could I not throw with this, this arm? He couldn't bend his left arm. I don't know how you would play if you can't bend one of your arms, but he did. As long as he was in the huddle, you always felt like you had a chance to win. The broken arm would cost Archie a shot at the Heisman, and his Rebels never did win an SEC title. But his story became iconic nonetheless. He married the homecoming queen. And later his sons would add more layers to the legend in the SEC and beyond.
I got to know him when I was writing about Peyton. He'd been in New Orleans for 30 years at the time. And he said he still wasn't a New Orleanian. And he still identified with Mississippi and people there still claimed him as, as their own. He's just a, a man, an individual whose integrity is impeccable. All of the adoration and the, everybody wanting to give him everything and do everything for him. Never once did I ever see him compromise his integrity. My dad's always in my mind, you know, and then start playing football and see the other parents after the game, you know. And I miss that. Yeah, you don't, uh, you can't take life for granted. You know, everybody talks about what a great parent he, parents, he and Olivia have been for their three boys. And I think it all goes back to losing his father the way he did and making sure that his kids have the full, full value of their daddy. In the spring of 1971, Bear Bryant knew he had to make a change. That was a desperate time. You know, the team of the 60s was really floundering. Four seasons had passed without an SEC championship. Rumors were swirling. There was a sense that the Bear had lost his touch. He realized that uh, he couldn't win with the dropback passing game. So he called his old friend Darrell Royal at Texas and arranged for Darrell and his offensive coordinator, Emory Ballard, the inventor of the wishbone, to come to Tuscaloosa for a coaching conference. They took them out to the Holiday Inn, and they holed up for three days. And they drilled and drilled and went through everything you could learn and know about the wishbone. He was the world's best, absolute best, at picking your brain. If you were doing something good and something new and a little something innovative, oh, he'd wear you out. And by the time you got through talking, you hadn't learned a damn thing and he'd learned everything you knew. The players didn't know about it until they came back for two-a-day practice. And he said, we're going to sink or swim with this. He's opening the 1971 season at the Los Angeles Coliseum, John McKay of Southern Cal. So they had beaten Alabama handily 42 to 21 the year before in Birmingham. Well, John McKay knows nothing about the wishbone. They know ran one snap in practice against the wishbone. Davis on the third and two. Davis keeping himself. Makes it across the 45. Davis to the 35. Davis down to the Southern California. Southern Cal is completely taken by surprise. We scored the first three times we had the ball. We scored two touchdowns to kick the field goal and then hung on like a punch drunk boxer. Harry Davis. Along with the victory, the game also saw John Mitchell 
break a color barrier as the first African-American player for the Crimson Tide. It was the beginning of the second half of Bryant's career. He snatched this incredible victory out of the whispers of his own demise. It ignited, of course, the winningest decade in the history of college football up to that point. Oftentimes, people would ask me what I remember most about football. And it really all comes down to the people you played with, the venues that you experienced. In all the places that I have been, in all the places that I played in, there's just no place like Tiger Stadium on a Saturday night. None. Before he was the 1976 NFL MVP and a member of the College Football Hall of Fame, Bert Jones was a kid from Ruston, Louisiana, in a two-quarterback rotation at LSU. Plenty of home state kids become legends over time, but Jones's fame came suddenly and immediately on November 20th, 1971, when he was a junior and the seventh-ranked Fighting Irish of Notre Dame came to town for a night game on ABC Sports. Coach Mike says, look, I'm going to start Burt Jones because I think we got to throw the ball to beat Notre Dame. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame have played football in every nook and corner of the United States. But tonight, it's a new experience for them because they're appearing here for the first time. When I was a production assistant, I couldn't wait to go down to LSU at night because our director, Andy Sedaris, was born and raised in LSU. He was raised a Cajun. And he talked about it all week. Ricky, you're never gonna see anything like this your whole life. We're gonna be eating crawfish all day and drinking beer, and by the time we get to the game, I may not be able to stand up. Just bring me chicken at halftime, and we'll try to get through it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, now you're hearing the incessant roaring of the Bayou Bengal fans here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We showed the Fighting Irish what a real venue was to play in. I laugh at my wife because she was raised Catholic down here. You will receive down here. They had to go to Mass to ask if they could pull against Notre Dame. Line of scrimmage at the Notre Dame 37, Jones, needs yardage. Jones pumps once, wide open. And there's a touchdown for LSU and the Hamilton. Jones and his cousin, wide receiver Andy Hamilton, connected on two touchdown passes. Here's Jones running to the left. And the Tigers would route Notre Dame 28 to 8. The whole stadium dumped to the field. People were picking players up and carrying them off the field and they ripped off all the jerseys, grabbed half of my pads. And the horn sounds, officially the game is being called over, and LSU is a big victor. And that Saturday happened to be the opening day of deer season up in northern Louisiana. We always had Sunday off. Let's go deer hunting. All of a sudden, after the game, for the first time ever, Coach McClendon announced that we were going to have a Sunday meeting. You're not going deer hunting now, and I, I thought, no, it'll be all right. But I just woke up real early that next day. 
I had to be out of the woods by 11 o'clock. At about a quarter till 11, I heard the Jeep crank up to come pick me up. And then all of a sudden, here comes a big eight-point buck. And he runs right out in front of me. And so I take the deer and I, I, I pick him up. And by the time he gets there, I have him in hand. We hurry then because now we're really late. And so we haul tail back to Baton Rouge. And I got here five minutes before the meeting and I have my Polaroid picture of my eight point buck. So I call it the Notre Dame buck. <laughs> The same year Jones emerged for LSU, Auburn's Pat Sullivan won his school's first Heisman Trophy. While the next year, down in Knoxville, Tennessee, excitement surrounded the debut of another quarterback, a pioneer who'd grown up in Alabama, Condridge Holloway. Holloway looks in his direction, throws opposite. Yarbrough, touchdown, Tennessee, 20 yards, Holloway. When he was recruited out of high school, every SEC program would have been happy to find a spot for Holloway. But only one was willing to let him play the position he wanted. Tennessee was the only school that was going to let a black man play quarterback. I was not going to switch positions. I wanted to play quarterback, and Coach Battle and his staff had no problem with that. Other universities did. It was mainly the ones in the state of Alabama, and it wasn't because of the coaches. Coach Jordan and Coach uh, Bear Bryant were, had no problem with it, but the governor of Alabama had a problem with it. That was George Wallace. Did you ever have any misgivings or doubts about coming into one of the last of the Lily White Leagues? Uh, now that I look back on it, Jim, no, I didn't. I, I didn't come here as a pioneer for anything as far as being black. My lasting image of Condridge is him on the run and somebody grabbing that jersey, and those mesh jerseys were designed to just rip apart. There's something about him. There's a natural rally guy of, all right, it's rally time. The first black quarterback in conference history led plenty of rallies in his three years as the Vols starter from 1972 through 1974, and was a popular team leader to boot. My teammates were my friends, yeah. Those were my friends. They weren't my white friends. They were my friends. I'm so glad for that. All of them were products of a time and a place where the game was deeply embedded in the fabric. Football is ingrained in the culture of the Southern communities. It's ingrained and it's not going away. These young men are raised to play football. There were countless stories that bore the same threads. Among the more common, the sons of high school coaches who inherited their father's reverence for the game. My dad 
He instilled in me the beauty of LSU football. You know, it's kind of hard to compute. It just has such value to people, such meaning to people. They want their ashes spread in the end zone of Tiger Stadium. I hear that all the time. Well, when I die, they're going to bury me in, in the end zone of Tiger Stadium. In Louisiana, LSU football goes hand in hand with a passion for great food and good times. So it was for John Ed Bradley, who could trace his family back to the French settlers. My surname is, is English, Bradley, but all my people are Louisiana French. Gilbo and Fontenot. The French are, are small of stature. I think a lot of the Louisiana people took pride in the fact that, the, that these French folks, these small people, were so aggressive and athletic. The football team sort of carried the dreams of the area on its shoulders. You never forgot who you were. In Bradley's case, he was born the same year LSU won a national championship with Billy Cannon, 1958. My dad had a little transistor radio, and he, he liked to barbecue on Saturday evening. So he, we'd sit outside, and the, on the, there was this slab. He called, you know, we, it, it was a, he called it a patio, but it was a cement slab with some crummy old furniture on it. And he would barbecue out there and drink his beer. And I would sit out there listen, and listen to the game. He'd have that little transistor radio. Whenever LSU was on TV, we would be dying in, in anticipation of that game. I can remember him. It was a rainy night, and LSU was on, and he climbed up on the roof to turn the antenna to just get it a little bit better, you know, so we could see it a little bit better. The world seemed smaller when I was a kid. We would go to Baton Rouge, and um, you'd have to cross the Mississippi River. And when you crossed the river, you could see Tiger Stadium. There it was. And I would just live for those days, those few days a year, when I would get to Baton Rouge. I went one time on a bus. My dad took me down there, and he put me on the bus, and I sat there. I was a little boy, and I went, and we, we, we got to Baton Rouge, and we got to LSU, and we went into Tiger Stadium, and I walked up the ramps. And I walked up there, and I was way up there in the nosebleed section. But I looked out, and there it was, you know, this, it was like, like heaven. Somebody gave me binoculars, and I found Coach Mack, you know, and I, and I zeroed in, on, and I'm like, that's Coach Mack. It was a, the biggest moment of my life. And then we watched the game, and LSU won. Then we got back on the bus, and we went home, and my dad was in the parking lot you know, waiting for me. How was it? Did you see Coach Mack? Did you see the Tiger? And it was huge. Everybody knows that. 
there are ghosts in that stadium. And, you know, you sense them in the locker room and you, you feel them out on the, on the field. And they're all the, the people who came before you. It's that eternal Saturday night thing. If you're great enough, you never age in this cathedral. Billy Cannon could tell you that. And so could Burt Jones, who remained a full-time starter for the Tigers in 1972. When I was coming up, the thing you heard a lot was, he's going to be the next Burt Jones. He was golden too, but quite different from Cannon. Tall, uh, rangy guy, could throw the ball a mile. They would say that he could throw it 100 yards. Burt was undoubtedly an NFL quarterback. The rusting rifle, I believe they called him. I can remember one day in practice, let me tell you, the ball went over my head, and I promise you it was whistling. <laughs> he threw the ball with so much spin on his speed. Bert Jones married a girl who came from my hometown. Her name's Danny. She was the most beautiful girl in the town, and I would melt whenever I saw her. And then when she started dating Bert, it just added to her glamour and her beauty. I went one time with one of her friends in a car full of kids to see a movie, and it was like the highlight of my youth, that I was sitting in the back seat, she was in the front seat, and that was Burt Jones' girlfriend. So it was that kind of, it had that kind of importance to me as a kid. So yeah, I, I idolized him and anybody he touched. The 72 Tigers were undefeated coming into a showdown with Ole Miss in one of the SEC's great rivalries. LSU was down 16-10. With three minutes to go and the ball in Jones's hands. You're behind by six points. You have 80 yards to go. If you score, you win. You just don't get these opportunities in life and certainly in sports very often. But this was one of those situations. I was calling the plays and running the field, and we just marched. We made a couple of really key third down plays, and there we are in position to score. Time for one play in the game. It was electric in the stands, on the sidelines, on the field. Right arm of Bert Jones, he's back to throw, shoots the Ledoux, incomplete in the end zone. The Ole Miss fans start celebrating, and then everybody looks up at the clock in Tiger Stadium, and there's a big one. One second left. One second to go. They came to the sidelines, and we had what you would call a two-point conversion play, which was going to be the play that we were going to run. He winks at Charlie McClendon, and he goes back on the field. Bert was nothing if he was not a confident athlete. I'm sure it was just something in my eye. He has Davis. It is. It was truly a spectacular comeback. The Ole Miss people were beside themselves. How could you run two plays in four seconds? Did I ever meet the clock operator? Well, 
he wasn't real close, Ken. But I think he was my second cousin. So yeah, I've kind of known him all my life. <laughs> no, the answer to your question is, that's not a true story, Archie, it's not. Uh, but yes, I have met the clock operator and I think it was a legitimate mistake. <laughs> I used to drive back to my home of Ruston, Louisiana by going up through Natchez, Mississippi. And if you just go right above uh, the state line, there was a sign that says, you're entering Mississippi, please set your clock back four seconds. A month later, in the fall of 72, the Alabama Crimson Tide would square off against Auburn in their annual battle. Auburn, with one loss on the season, coming into Legion Field against yet another undefeated Alabama squad. We had no big-name people at all. We had no one. A lot of the propaganda was printed in the papers about how Auburn was just a Cal college and Alabama was going to row over. Alabama would be leading 16-3 late in the fourth when the game went off script in one of the strangest Iron Bowls ever. Alabama, Auburn, 1972. When I would talk to people about that, they don't, they don't say, my child was born in 1972. They say, my child was born the week that there was punt, Bama punt. Time was running out. They were driving the football. There's four minutes and 30 seconds left. We had just stopped them on a third down play and forced Alabama to punt. Auburn trying to go after it. Here's a snap. They got it. Block kick. Ball's back to the 25. Picked up on the bounce at the 25-yard line. And in for a touchdown is David Langner. I think Bill Newton blocked it. And it is. Touchdown, Auburn. And I knew I had, I had it. It was just a matter of timing myself to take the ball off his foot. Of course, we played on that uh, AstroTurf, and it was like a Brillo pad, and we had those mesh jerseys on, and everything you do out there, I mean, when you slide and you just skin up everything, it just takes the hide off of you. Bill Newton was an introvert. The Auburn linebacker kept to himself, but loved being part of a team. I'm a country boy. I was raised up uh, that, man, I did what I was told to do. I, I, I played hard, tried to leave it out there on the field. The Tiger who scored the touchdown off that blocked punt was Newton's polar opposite. David Langner was the life of the party, though also a consummate teammate. He didn't do anything in the slow motion. It's always full speed. Fourth down and nine yards to go for the University of Alabama. And deep is Johnny Simmons. There was just a minute 40 left in the game when Auburn forced the Tide to punt again. Greg Gant standing on his own 30. Auburn will try to block it. When the ball was snapped, it was just the same picture I had in my mind of the previous one. Auburn going after it. Here's a good snap. It is blocked! It is blocked! It's caught on the run! Talking about karma, there was something in the air. And the entire Auburn team has come out to get David Wagner. Truth is stranger than fiction. If you wrote that or, or made a movie of it, that ain't true. And here's Davis back to throw. Lots of time. He's away up the middle. Overthrown, intercepted at the 41. Auburn's ball. David Wagner. And Auburn is won. The Auburn Tigers have defeated the University of 
one of the stirring comebacks that you ever want to see in the history of football. It was and still is a very depressing game. That one cost us a national championship because we were going to play Texas and we were going, you know, we were going to beat Texas. That was no question. It is not. It is not. We make an error and cost us the ball game, and then after the ball game, nobody wants to go play in the Cotton Bowl. You know, I mean, that's why we lost to Texas because we didn't want to be there. College football is back, and you'll hear roaring and thunder tonight like you seldom hear. All throughout the 1970s, beyond the field, the business of sports television and football in particular was booming across America. There were only three networks and just one broadcast college football, ABC. And so as the games became more important, so did the network carrying them. NBC and CBS split the NFL. So ABC poured all of its assets, all of its resources, all of its creativity into Saturday afternoon. ABC Sports in the 70s was unlike anything we have today. When ABC Sports rolled into town, the town rolled out a red carpet. Anything we needed, we got. We were more powerful than the newspapers, the radio. Not only was money coming into town, but storytelling was coming into town. People who visually and with words articulated and painted a picture of the passion of Southeastern Conference football. And this game should be known In the early days, Chris Schenkel was ABC's signature voice. Double wing formation, second and goal. Terry Davis, touchdown, Alabama. Okay, uh, Keith and Bud, we're not going to tape your opening head. Until he was replaced in 1974 by Keith Jackson. It was Bruce Rule who finally pulled him down. Who elevated the game to a whole other level. Keith Jackson uh, was uh, the poet laureate of college football. And so how do you do the sweet nectar of a lead for the faithful of Ole Miss? He didn't just capture what was going on. He made you feel it in a visceral way, in an emotional way. Fourth down, they need about six inches. They're going to go for it from their own 29-yard line. Fisher, they go wide with it. And he doesn't get it. He didn't get in the way of the games. He clarified, amplified, and tried not to intrude. He understood the people. He understood the players. He called them youngins. He called them big uglies in the trench. He was just the right guy at the right time. You can hear from the roar of the crowd as the red shirts come out of the tunnel. This is a football crazy city. When he showed up, you knew it was a big game. Right now, let's talk about this game and talk with Frank Broyles, who's an old Georgia boy coming back down here to wiggle his toes in the red clay. As an SEC guy, um, growing up in a small town in Georgia, he understood what college football and the SEC meant to the societies in these various states. It's easy to say, just roar and lay back your head and say, how about them dogs? I didn't even learn how. Well, if you grow up in Keith Jackson's era and in the household he grew up in, I don't think you thought of college as being an option. Keith and Brian, they were a lot alike. You know, they grew up on farms in the South. 
They knew what it was like to be behind a plow. The only way out, the only way off that farm was the Marines. And he goes to the Marines and suddenly college is an option because of the GI Bill. He had an imagination and he had a curiosity. He wanted to see uh, the rest of the world. He was a big man. He was a Marine. He was not someone you would take lightly. He walked out of an interview one time on a Friday afternoon with Bear Bryant. He waited all afternoon for Bear, and finally Bear walked across the field, and Keith had started to pack up, and Coach Bryant said, I understand you waiting for me, and Keith said, not anymore. ABC's games were seen all across the country, and the network developed pioneering production techniques still in use today all across sports television. In my opinion, there are two people that are enormously responsible for the explosion of Southeastern Conference football. One is Keith Jackson. Did some nice smog shots the way it is today. And the second person is a director named Andy Sedaris. Andy Sedaris I worked with for two years as a production assistant and as an AD. Tomorrow's ball game, we have eight cameras. We have uh, five cameras that are primarily covering uh, the ball game, uh, two handheld cameras for color, for coaches and benches and cheerleaders, etc. Andy Sedaris created and developed the handheld camera. He was the one that pushed the cheerleading shots, the band shots. camera two. 87 camera 40. After a touchdown, we don't need to go to a replay right away. Nathan the pageantry, the color, the sideline. Andy and his camera crew found those shots that really captured the passion of college football. So long from Tiger Thank you. All clear. Everybody's That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Rush the passer. Rush the passer. Go. Back. Back. Run like a wild man. Wild man turned to lose. Auburn's legendary coach, Suge Jordan, retired after the 1975 season. He had pulled the program out of financial ruin in the early 1950s and in the quarter century to follow, won a national title and kept the team a top 20 mainstay. All, of course, after his Purple Heart and Bronze Star. Suge Jordan was a great man, and I think that's why, because he was a World War II hero. He was in on the North African invasion, invasion of Sicily, Normandy, where on D-Day he was wounded by shrapnel at Utah Beach, but refusing to be taken away. And then they pulled him out of there and sent him to the Pacific, and he was in on the Okinawa invasion. He'd die in 1980 of leukemia. Not long after his old rival, Bear Bryant, noted, Suge has more courage in his little finger than I've got in my entire body. By 1976, Vince Dooley had won 88 games and an SEC title in his 12 years as Georgia's head coach. But still, like all the coaches in the SEC, he always seemed to be chasing Bear Bryant. 
with Alabama once again the measuring stick in the league. We probably didn't have the greatest players, but we had guys with good hearts. The year before, Georgia had hung a moniker on its defense. The Junkyard Dogs. A junkyard dog is a mean dog, and maybe even a small dog. A dog that you don't want to mess with, because it's got a chip on his shoulder. They weren't really big, and they weren't really that good, but they swarmed. One person does not tackle a person. Six do. And James Brown comes to Athens, Georgia to sing the song at halftime of one of our games. It was just a rallying point for our players. Our defensive coordinator was the best of the best, and that was Coach Irk Russell. Having Irk Russell butt you in the head and, and bleed in the head, and then love The players just loved him, he loved them. No other coach had what Coach Russell had. I didn't butt heads with him, but uh, I tell you what, if he wanted to butt my head, I'd butt his head. On October 2nd, 1976, the 3-0 Bulldogs hosted the Crimson Tide in Athens. And they stayed at the Holiday Inn. It's about two blocks, three blocks from the stadium. And they said people were hollering and screaming all night. And the players didn't sleep at all said they had to pull their mattresses in the, in the hallway and sleep in the hall. When they pulled in the stadium, the railroad tracks are there. But when Alabama pulls in, there's about 10,000 people in the railroad tracks because they couldn't get tickets. And they started rocking their bus. And those guys thought they were going to push the bus over and they were going to fall down the hill. I think it kind of shook them up a little bit. Bear Bryant, even up till halftime, thought they could still win. But he said in the second half, we just got worse. Now the fact that we ended up shutting them out 21 to nothing, I don't think anyone was counting on that. You just don't do that. The 21 nothing win over Alabama left Athens in a state of delirium and would propel the Bulldogs to their only SEC title of the decade. That night, it was most unbelievable thing I've ever seen in Athens, Georgia. The streets were mocked. The parties are historic. 21 nothing, And it was bad. And practice the next week was worse. I mean, I saw guys, big, huge guy crying because of the practices. Practices in Tuscaloosa under Bear Bryant. From generation to generation, decade to decade, Crimson Tide players would never forget their brutal, endless days under the hot Alabama sun and the unforgiving wrath of their coach. Get ready, let's get ready, let's get ready. Games were fun. Practice was brutal. Coach Bryan always believed that each and every one of us had a quitter inside of us. He wanted to know that 
you would not quit during a game. Do your job. No problem, Mac. Get out and do it. Any player that ever played for Coach Bryant would, can always tell you there was one time where Coach Bryant pushed the envelope. And they're commonly referred to as gut check practices. We'd run 70, 75, 80 straight plays without any break at all. And I mean, you talking about coaches, you talking about slava coming. I mean, you talking about people going bonkers. Everybody vomited. I mean, that was part of it. Go on over there and get sick and then get back into drill. Passing out, all those things. And everything happened underneath Coach Bryant's tower. Whenever Coach Bryant would like kind of lean over with his megaphone, he'd go, well, what'd he say? What'd he say? I don't I don't know. I didn't hear exactly what he say. Is he coming out of the tower? Across that opening where he climbed up and went in, there was a chain. And when he took that fastener loose and dropped that chain, everybody tightens up. It was some days that you look back, I'm thinking, how did guys not literally die? The Commonwealth of Kentucky is best known for horses, bourbon, and basketball. But in the mid-1970s, University of Kentucky caught the football bug. It was all generated by an African-American quarterback, Derek Ramsey, even as he fought stereotypes of the past up close. I was not the first choice. Uh, there were other guys who happened to be white, and I'm looking into the huddles of my guys' eyes. I would say, guys, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I'm not a smart guy. You're thinking I can't read defenses. Now let me tell you what I know to be a fact. I know you guys can't run, and I know you probably can't jump. That's why you're in front of me. Ramsey had come to UK under weighty expectations. One of the relationships I had was with A.B. Happy Chandler. When Governor Chandler told me that I was going to be a representative for every person every time I took the field, and I remember my comment as if it were yesterday, I said, Gov, I didn't come here to be Martin Luther King. I came here to play football. I came here to get my degree. He helped me understand the role. I had to be different. I could not be a person that went to bars, so I didn't drink while I was in college at all. In 1976, the Wildcats finished seven and six and even upset Penn State. Penn State was always a really interesting one for me. All the way for Ramsey. I'd gotten recruited by Penn State out of high school, and Joe Pa, uh, with his honesty, told me that I would not be able to play quarterback there. Somebody got his jersey, but that's all they got. So optimism abounded in Lexington, especially after a season-ending visit to the Peach Bowl. People think that we're just basketball fans, but in 1976, we had 10 inches of snow, and we were going to the Peach Bowl 
with 33,000 fans to follow us. That doesn't sound like just a basketball school to me. Still early in the fourth quarter, and he gets the ball again. After shutting out North Carolina in the Peach Bowl, the 1977 season started slowly with a win and a loss, and Ramsey taking heat in the press for remarks he'd made after being booed in a win at home. We're beating West Virginia rather convincingly. So I started trotting back on the field, and the fans started booing. After the game, Billy went on to say, how does it make you feel when the fans are booing you? And so I told the fans to go to hell. I was tired of them, and I was playing for my team and for my teammates, and uh, that was it. The season turned around from there. Ramsey recommitted himself with a new determination, and the Wildcats ran the table, beating a third-ranked Penn State team along the way. number three in the country. We went up there and put it on. There was also a rout of LSU in Death Valley. And they didn't just, you know, beat people. They dominated people, people that Kentucky football was not used to dominating. All those powerhouses, we whipped them. Georgia. And they beat us in 76, and then in 77, we came back and humiliated them. In spite of their 10-1 record, there'd be no bowl game since the school was on a one-year probation. As for Ramsey, after an NFL career which earned him a Super Bowl ring, he resettled in Kentucky, working for the Commonwealth, among other things, as the Secretary of Education and Workforce Development. As I go out all around the state, and I meet these elderly African-American people in 70s, 80s, some early 90s. They tell me how happy they were for me, one, but more importantly, how proud I made them. That rang true back to what Governor Chandler was telling me as an 18-year-old. champion of the SEC in that 1977 season was Alabama. And on January 2nd, 1978, the Tide met Ohio State in the Sugar Bowl with a shot at the national title. Alabama routed the Buckeyes 35 to 6, but finished with the number two ranking behind Notre Dame. It's over. That was very painful. If it was real questionable between Alabama and Notre Dame, Notre Dame was going to get the nod. Alabama was ranked number one going into 78. It wasn't, are you going to win, Is how bad you're going to win. I mean, we practiced on Sunday morning because we only beat a team by 24 points. That was Coach Bryant's way. And after winning their first two games handily, hosted number seven Southern Cal in front of a national audience on ABC. The game marked a milestone for a young sports writer named Rick Bragg. First time I ever saw a major college football game. 
was at that USC game. You know, being an 18, 19-year-old ink-stained wretch, I wore clip-on ties, shirts with not one natural fiber in them, unless you count cat hair. Southern California, Charles White has it. Student body right. Look out, he's gone. He's gone now. He is gone. Touchdown. And when it was all over with, seeing Bryant walk so tiredly, I was going to interview Paul Bear Bryant after the game. I didn't know I was going to be like one of 60. When you have that bear's voice anyway, and then your heart's broke too, I still don't know what he said. But somebody else understood it and gave me a sheet of what he said, so I had to take that on faith. They out-recruited us, they out-taught us, they out-molded them the way they wanted to, they had us out-prepared, and they out-played us. That's what I'm supposed to do. Alabama regrouped and steadily moved back up the poles, not losing another game during the 78 regular season. If you played for Coach Bryant before you even signed a scholarship to play at the University of Alabama, Coach Bryant would look you in the eye and tell you, don't come here unless you want to do the things it takes to win a national championship. Their chance would come in the 1979 Sugar Bowl. Number one undefeated Penn State against number two once defeated Alabama. Dark blue versus crimson. Joe Pa versus Bear. North versus South. I think it's fair to say that the militaristic nature of football, the, the fight for turf, which is the essence of football and at the end of the day is the essence of war, fit hand in glove with Southern culture. It's the only sport in which every player needs every teammate on every play just to survive. And Rutledge rides to his fullback. I think every player that played in that game will tell you that that was the hardest hitting, most physically demanding game that any player played in. They were just pounded up. They were, they were very physical at a point of attack. Major Ogilvy had heard it many times from his coach. In a game like this, a few big plays would make the difference. Only the foot speed of Major At that point, they were in field goal range. But we made some big plays defensively, and they actually lost ground and took them out of field goal range. Only a few scores would come, begrudgingly, against two extraordinary defenses. At the end of the third quarter, every player would raise their hand with four. I mean, it was time for us to really lay our ears back, put a little extra effort, and get things going. By the fourth quarter's midpoint, 
Alabama was clinging to a 14-7 lead. Second down and goal to go from the six. Businger on a roll to the right. Puts it up. It is good. Fitzky. And he is knocked out of bounds after one. I had my, play, my player covered. I saw the ball being thrown. And I got there as the ball was being caught. I can remember from the side and thinking, he's in. Mac hits him. Still the greatest single individual effort I've, I've ever seen in, in, in the history of Alabama football. There was one whale of a defensive play. They went for it on third down. We stopped them. Chuck Fusina, quarterback, goes to the sideline, and Marty Lyons yells across at him. He said, you better pass. Because you cannot run it in, run it in here. Alabama fans don't like offense. They don't. They want blue-collar, hard-nosed, punch-in-the-mouth defense. Fourth and goal could be the ball of wax right here. It was just everything Coach Bryant talked about. He said there's going to be a time and a place in your life where you're going to have to dig deep inside yourself. Are you going to quit? Are you going to make something happen? Goldman. I hit him. I just face to face. I uh, chipped my helmet and pinched the nerve in my neck. An Alabama man is now on the field that it looks like it might be Barry Cross. I don't really remember too much after that game, but I just remember being down on the ground after we made the hit. Marty Lyons picking me up, and he said, we did it. We stopped him. I didn't know whether we did or we didn't. Cross went head on with Gooman and took a solid shot, but he got the job done. What a transcendent moment it was. It is over. Alabama has defeated Penn State. And I do remember what Coach Bryant said. Congratulations on the win. And I want to particularly proud and happy for this senior class. And for the rest of you, we'll start practicing in a couple of weeks. First time I, I ran out there was uh, the Nebraska game in 1976. The older players told me, you know, it's going to be really emotional and you're, you're going to wet your pants. I heard that a lot, you know, and I think some guys did. Thank God I never did that. And the first thing that hit you back then, at least, was the smell of alcohol in the air. You could smell the whiskey in the air. Fighting Tigers of LSU. In 1979, John Ed Bradley's senior season, he was a captain of a hard luck seven and five Tiger team. Center, a four-year letterman, John Ed Bradley. Two of LSU's losses were nail biters against the two best teams in the country. Alabama. Running that wristbone, pitches out, and Ogilvy's got the football and a lot of yardage. And Southern Cal. The stadium's going berserk. I walk up to snap the ball, first play of the game, and this, I can see their defensive linemen, they're like this. And their nose guard says, dude, what was with that tiger? He says, well, what was with that tiger? And, the ti and I thought, what's he talking about? The tiger, Mike the Tiger, had been in a cage on the sideline, and he was just roaring up a storm. And they, they put the microphone in there with him, and so it was broadcast over the 
over the speakers. And I said, that tiger's here in case we don't beat your ass. Lone running back of Hernandez, Dinsmanger, touchdown, LSU! We smoked them. They came in and we just punched them in the mouth. Woodley wants to throw. He's in trouble. Now he's going to go back the other way. And he's got an open field. 30, 35, 40, 45. We had them beat. I, we had them beat. Pitches back to Jones. Jones. 40, 35, 30, 25, 20. Somehow they scored with about 30 seconds left and beat us. Jumps it off to Kevin Williams. Touchdown, USA! Like for so many others, John Ed Bradley's four years had gone by fast, from the hot August practices to the eternal bonds forged in victory and defeat alike. And of course, the cheers of thousands all those Saturdays. It's the pride you take in being part of that program and being one of, one of those guys. Everybody has the dream, but so few really get to live it. And then, it was over. Time somehow to move on. The hard thing is you do this for four years and it becomes your life, your identity, and then you're jettisoned out into the world and you have to find yourself. Years later, Bradley wrote about the end. I went to Tiger Stadium to clean out my locker. The last thing I packed was my helmet, covered with little Tiger decals. I ran my fingertips over the surface, feeling the scars on the hard plastic crown. There were paint smudges and streaks from helmets I'd butted over the years. Was the gold Vanderbilt or Florida State? The red Alabama or Georgia or USC? When I finished packing, I walked down the chute that led to the playing field. Death Valley was quiet now. We'd perform to a full house almost every home game, the crowds routinely in excess of 75,000. But today, there was no one in sight. It seemed like the loneliest place on earth. I was only 21 years old, yet I believed that nothing I did the rest of my life would rise up to those days when I wore the purple and gold. Oh, I can get really emotional talking about how it was, and my friends, my teammates, my coaches. It, it was the defining experience in my life. After turning down a free agent offer from the Dallas Cowboys, my father asked me, you don't even want to try? He and my mother were losing something too. One of their sons had played football at LSU, and where I come from, nothing topped that. It's over, I said. My father nodded and walked away. I struggled. I really struggled to get over it. I made this vow not to go back. I saw guys going back. You know, when I was playing, I would see these old players come around and we would say they can't give up the ghost. And I didn't want to be one of those guys. I was in my 40s and I was, you know, I'd had this great career. I was writing for SI, I had been with the Washington Post. I had books out there. 
But nothing equaled LSU. Nothing equals Saturday night entire stadium. So I knew I had to write about it. So I wrote the piece. It took me about four days, and I sent it in, and I didn't hear from anybody. It, I mean, a week went by, two weeks went by, and that, that was really uncommon. I couldn't sleep at night, so I thinking, I'm, I'm making a fool of myself. You know, I don't, this doesn't need to be published. I need to get it back, and I'll go do a different story. Just give me this, and I'm going to kill it. And they're saying, oh, no, 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 we're not, you know, it's running. It's running. The best years of his life appeared in Sports Illustrated in 2002. It struck a chord and then some among sports fans, ex-athletes, and literary critics alike. I'd never had a reaction before like, like that one. I mean, it was tremendous letters, mostly from former athletes, men and women, all different kinds of sports who'd had similar experiences, you know, who had loved the game and then who'd moved on from it and never really gotten over it. But a lot from the people in the South, you know, Southeastern Conference schools and former players, a lot of them, they, I, they got it. Going back is, is still painful for me. And it's not because I have a hard time at the game. I'm okay at the game. But it's the day after and the day after that. I start thinking about it. You know, I'll miss my father. Um, my, my experience there is tied to my dad. I loved him so much. I loved him too much. I was in my 20s when he died, and I, and I go there, and he's alive again, you know? And, and I'm there, I'm playing again, and, and he's watching me. And it turns me into a boy again, 60 years old still get emotional. So I figured out that I needed to stay my butt home and not go. However, my daughter, she's always after me, Daddy, I want to go see the Tigers play. I want to see Tiger Stadium. I've been telling for like the last four years, we're going to go, we're going to go. But I don't take her. But I, I, I'll have to, I'm going to have to do that. I'm just going to have to suck it up and be a man about it. Back in Tuscaloosa in 1979, Alabama picked up right where they left off and ran off 10 straight wins going into the Iron Bowl. The first half, we were up 14 to three. And then we come out the third quarter and a shadow came over Legion Field and a little dew fell. And all of a sudden the ball got a little slick. We fumbled four times in the third quarter. And then you know what Coach Bryant does? He benches the first team offense starting the fourth quarter. We're just watching. Next thing you know, they're up 18 to 17. You know, I'd never been beat by Auburn. I mean, you don't want to go out that way. You, I mean, you got to live the rest of your life in this state. Well, the next time we get it, you know, we march it the length of the field, 82 yards, and. I was fortunate enough to score the winning touchdown. You just never celebrate, never did anything. I mean, you gave the ball to the officials and you ran off because Coach Bryant said, always show you class. I celebrated. That was the greatest moment in my football career. 
It was Alabama's seventh straight win over Auburn. The bear was now 66, with a persona that had reached mythical proportions and a team going into yet another national championship game, this time with a perfect record. From the 22-yard line, and it's going to be touchdown Ogilvy! Alabama easily handled Arkansas 24-9. Sheila gives it to Whitman. Touchdown! To claim a third national championship of the 70s and Bryant's sixth overall. The greatest thing about being at Alabama is that we won. We were 34-2 and two, my three years. We never had a parade. Never really, I can remember, even had a banquet. That was what you're supposed to do. You're Alabama. I said to my grandmother once, her face had a line in it for every fit she ever threw and every hot mile she ever walked, and that was Bryant. Bryant's face had a line in it for every goal line stand, every bout with wild turkey. You can see block punts. You can see Charles White running wild. You can see every mile he rode in the back seat of that big sedan. I heard that he would take his hat off and he would sit it in the back window. And there wasn't a state trooper or a city policeman in all the world that was going to pull over a car with a houndstooth hat in the back windshield. Even if he seemed immortal, the end was not far away for the bear and SEC rivals would soon seize the opportunity to stop the tide in the years to come. The 1980s in the Southeastern Conference would look very different in any number of ways. But the passion, the intensity, and the identity of football in the South would remain its indelible foundation. 